maybe a year prior to that, when I was in like eighth grade, I got in trouble at my little private school for running through the halls, faking like I was Pavarotti. Victoria Williams, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Millennial Microwave? Hello, listener, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, Megaphonic FM's aspiring Oprah analog. Today we're chatting with Victoria Williams. Victoria Williams is a Washington, D.C.-based soprano, originally from Richmond, Virginia. She began her formal studies at Virginia Commonwealth University under the tutelage of the late L. Wayne Batty. Since moving to the D.C. area in 2011, Victoria has become a member of the Aria Club of Greater Washington, D.C., but she's made her primary singing focus in sacred music, ranging from traditional chant to masterworks to gospel. She's been singing professionally since 2006. Victoria and I have an animated and wide-ranging chat, from heavier issues like race and faith to lighter things like being a teen VH1 junkie and wanting to be an astronaut. As a professional singer, Victoria taught me a lot during our talk about how a voice develops and grows over the years. I had a lot of fun getting to know Victoria, and I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, Victoria. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's my pleasure to have you as a guest. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So we've just heard that you are a singer uh, and you've been involved in the world of performance for quite some time. What's the most interesting performance that you've had in your career? I have kind of a top three. I really have a top five, but (laughs) I can condense it to a top three. My first ever, like, my... Really, it's called my symphony debut, but Mm -hmm. my debut, even though I was an amateur at the time, I was 14 and I made my debut with the Richmond Symphony Orchestra. And that was pretty cool because it was at the Carpenter Center, which was the big hot to trot theater in Richmond. Um, It was basically, you know, Richmond's Broadway. So I got to make my symphony debut there at 14. Like I was in ninth grade. So (laughs) I I just, I was, I had this air of like, you can't tell me anything for, Mm -hmm. you know, years because of that. (laughs) And then um, the next really, really memorable performance that I had, um, I got to do this study abroad in Austria in 2010, and I got selected for um, the spirituals. One of the first concerts that we did was out of the city where the school was, um, and it was in the mountains. And I can't even remember the name of the city, but we got to do it at this monastery. And the church that I got to perform in was, I don't know, I think they said it was constructed in like the late 1200s. Um, (laughs) So it was stone and it's summer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's hot. Like everyone's got fans. There's clearly no air conditioning. Yeah. Um, There's not even like electrical outlets really there for them to plug in fans. Mm -hmm. So everyone's got like their handheld fans. And I remember this performance so vividly because people were sweating by the time I got up to sing. No microphone. And like this one guy, he was sitting like five rows back and he looked so agitated because he was so hot. And you could just tell he was there because his wife dragged him. Mm -hmm. And he like stopped fidgeting 
when I started singing. <laughs> and he just kind of sat there and he looked at me, but then he just zoned out. And then I yeah. stopped looking at him. So, you know, I kept singing. I finished up. And by the time I finished up, you know, everyone had gotten clapped for, but he stood up and clapped for me. <laughs> and, you reached him. <laughs> and, and then he, like, he came up to me after the performance and I, my German wasn't that great at mm-hmm. the time. I want to say, I think I had been in Austria for like all of two weeks. And when I got there, I could say, hello, goodbye, and excuse me. He was trying to talk to me in German, and then he realized I didn't speak German. And then he used his broken English to tell me, you know, how much he just really loved this performance. And he told me that his wife had actually dragged him along. So that was pretty cool. And then to round out my top three, um, when I was 29, I got to, so it was 15 years after my symphony debut, uh, Ted it's TEDx RVA. Mm-hmm. They had a presentation in Richmond and it was arts based. And I got to do a performance there. So literally 15 years after my debut, I got to come back to my home city. I got to do a performance on the exact same stage where I got to make my debut and I got to do it as a professional this time. Yeah. So you brought it back to your hometown. Yeah, I brought it right back home. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't we bring the conversation there, too? So this podcast, I ask guests to get five songs that sort of tell their life story for me. So the first song, what are we going to be talking about? We are going to be talking about Breaking My Heart, also known as Pretty Brown Eyes by Mint Condition. I see your eyes and you can start to make sense and quit playing these love Tell me what you're going on. Okay, so this song, Funky R&B, what's the story with it? How did this song come into your life? So I've always been kind of musically inclined, but not like as a great singer, right? Like I can, as long as I can remember, I was singing, but I didn't get like good at it until like third, second or third grade, Mm -hmm. right? And I used to spend a lot of time with my brothers and growing up... um, There was a huge age gap between my brothers and myself. My oldest brother is 20 years older than me. And my other brother is 16 years older than me, almost 17 years older than me. Yeah. So these these guys were like in their 20s when you were a little kid. Yeah. One of my when I was born, my oldest brother was about to graduate from college and my other brother was about to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like pretty big age gaps. Right. So. My parents were sending me to daycare growing up, but, you know, it was like a home daycare and my aunt ran it. So, you know, it was really comfortable kind of situation. So every I spent all my time with my family. Everybody in my family, for the most part, likes R&B. My brother, however, that used to take me around all the time, um, he was the one that was 16 years older than me. He was very, very into hip hop. And that used to be all I would hear in the car with him. He would put in a tape of somebody, right? Like Kumodi or anybody, right? Any old rapper. Then one day he put a tape in. The tape got jumbled in the car deck. Yeah. And he was so upset about it. And like he pulled the tape out. And when he got it out, the the ribbon on the tape was broken. I'm really dating myself right now. <laughs> I hope this doesn't 
doesn't go over like the younger listeners' heads. So we used to listen to music on magnetic tape. <laughs> so he's taking the tape out and like, granted, this is like 92. So yeah. I'm only like four or five. Like I'm not even that old. And he's taking the tape out and he pulls it out and the ribbon is broken. Yeah, And this is like a mixtape he had made. So all I hear are a bunch of explicatives and he turns the radio on. My brother was probably one of the first people I ever met that was anti the radio, right? Yeah. Like not listening to the radio under any circumstances. Well, he turns the radio on and they're coming out of a commercial and I hear silence. So I'm not paying any attention to it. And I'm sitting in the front seat. Also, please, younger listeners, do not be baffled by the fact that there's like a four or five year old sitting in the front seat. There were no rules or laws about these things at the time. <laughs> you know, we kind of just got to kick it and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember being in the front seat, dangling my little feet, like, you know, on the front of the front seat. And it's quiet on the radio. And then you hear the opening two chords mm-hmm. for Pretty Brown Eyes, the dun dun, dun dun And I'm like, what is that? Like, I was so confused. And then I hear the whispering, but I don't know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't realize mm-hmm. he's saying words. And then all I hear is, like, the the glissando on the piano. And, like, it's just, I'm so, like, struck by everything about the intro Mm -hmm. to this song. And, like, my young, like, mind is just racing because I've never heard R&B like this before. I've heard your Michael Jacksons. I've heard your Phyllis Hyman. You know, I've even heard Janet. Like, I've heard Paula Abdul. Mm -hmm. I've heard all these people, but I have not heard this this new age kind of band r&b because r&b when you tell me r&b in a band i'm thinking you know i grew up on earth wind and fire and maze and all of these people so that's what i'm thinking so when i hear this i'm just like this is revolutionary Mm. i don't And like, I'm like four or five and I'm just like, I need more. I need more of this. It just sent me down this rabbit hole of, I only wanted to listen to the radio. And it used to drive my brother up a wall because he used to love making mixtapes. And I mean, the old school way of making mixtapes, like you were listening to the radio and then you recorded the song on the tape and then you waited and so he put a lot of time and hard work into his mixtapes. And I basically would get in the the car and be like, I don't want to listen to that. Can we just turn the radio on? (laughs) Can we just turn the radio on? And I just used to just jump at the chance when I could like hear mint condition. And that led me into so many other groups. It led me down so many other pathways. It led me straight into new Jack swing. Like I knew about boys to men, but I didn't know about Motown Philly boys to men. I knew about like Two Boys to Men. These are album titles. Mm -hmm. So, like, I knew about On Bended Knee Boys to Men. I knew about that. You know, I didn't know about early Boys to Men. So, we're talking about an age when you would have, like, four or five. So, like, kindergarten. Yeah. Like, preschool, kindergarten. And, like, I was in this... I went to a private school, and I was in this, like, tag kind of preschool. And I was, like... There weren't that many... It wasn't a very, like, racially diverse classroom or anything like that. And there weren't that many black kids in my class. Um, And all of the black kids that were in my class, like, we had 
all our parents were around either the same age or like, well, my parents were older, but like they were kind of listening to the same R&B that I would listen to with my family. But then I remember I came to school one day (laughs) and I believe I came to school singing Blackstreet. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I like got in trouble for it. Like it was because like it was just. Was it No Diggity? No, that was much older. I was much older by then. It yeah, was No Diggity was, is like late 90s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was like mid-90s. That's like mid-90s. But yeah, this yeah. is like the earlier 90s. It wasn't, no, it wasn't Blackstreet. It was Guy. I was seeing <laughs> Do Me. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't have been singing that. I probably shouldn't have been listening to Guy. But, you know, like... I was, again, I was just so intrigued by, like, the idea of, like, these bands Mm -hmm. that were making R&B. It wasn't just a singer and a piano. You know, at the time, I didn't understand that, like, early R&B was mostly just piano, bass, and a singer. You know, guitar at max. Like, the little tiny combos. But, like, to see these, like, bands. And then, like, I remember, like, the first time that I heard Pretty Brown Eyes, like, the part when Stokely like goes up and it's quit breaking my heart. That part. Yeah. Yeah. I like remember like being so overcome by that because I knew he was a man and I'm like, why is this man singing so high? (laughs) And it just, it just sparked so many questions in me. And Uh like, you know, I grew up in the, I grew up in the dish jacket era. So, you know, lyrics were, you could find lyrics inside an album. You could find lyrics inside of the tape cover, right? <laughs> so I remember, like, I convinced my other brother, my older brother. He was with my um, my nephew's mother by then. And it, like, she was such an R&B, like, but she was into it. Like, Tony Braxton, Mint Condition. Um, and she was also into, like, you know, New Age jazz. So, like, Nichelle and Dago Ocello, like, you know, when I saw that she and I remember looking at her music collection and seeing that she had a mint condition tape Mm -hmm. and I just started spending all this time. I was already spending a lot of time with her because um, my brother's ex-wife is actually who taught me how to read. So I was already spending just an extensive amount of time with her anyway. Like she was kind of she was like my nanny almost in a little way. Um, and when I saw that she had all of this music, like this, this good, like early nineties R and B baby face, she's who introduced me to baby face. And I never would have really met any of these like songwriters and artists had I not seen that tape jacket like in her collection. And I just started sticking to her when I saw like, (laughs) oh, she's got all the cool music. Like I remember I listened to Tony Braxton's first album with her. Yeah. Like mint condition, like that song, it really, it just opened so many musical doors for me. And it really just defined, it really started like defining so many of like my earliest memories like my early elementary memories i'm trying to remember now how old you said you were when you started like singing seriously it was a little bit older than that oh yeah i was like eight i was like when i started singing seriously i was like eight we figured out i could sing when i was like seven yeah like little kids will will sort of like sing though like sing along to the yeah. radio or just sing sing so like when you were getting into this did you ever sort of think to yourself you'd like to make music, make music like this, or just make music generally? Or oh, absolutely not! I wanted to be an astronaut. I... <laughs> Fantastic! 
I like I have very fond memories of my mom and I. We had a tradition. Yeah. Anytime there was a lunar eclipse, we would go out on our back deck. Um, and I this is when I lived in Richmond. So we used to live in Highland Park. And when it would be it could be bitter cold or it could have been like blisteringly hot. But if there was a lunar eclipse, my mom would ensure and let me stay up and like, you know, I didn't have to have sugar or anything. I would just be excited about it. And we would go out on the deck and watch the eclipse, like into totality and then watch it fade out. And I would identify constellations and all these other things. And like when I tell you that being a musician was literally the furthest thing from my mind, like, no, that was that (laughs) thing that people did at church. And it was a thing that people did in their car. And I didn't know that people sang in the shower until like I saw it on TV (laughs) because, you know, like nobody, really nobody in my family is, is a, great singer at all they're all athletes why don't we move on to our next song then what do we have so the next song is a big turning point song for me Mm -hmm. and it's called perfect by alanis morissette if you're flawless then you're in my love don't forget to win first So this is from that monster. It is from Jagged Little Pill, isn't it? Yes, it yes, is. Yes, it is. I, I doubted myself for a second. I don't know why. Like the most massive <laughs> no. album. Oh my gosh. This is um, Jagged Little Pill is basically like my O Canada. Oh yeah? <laughs> um, it was my introduction to Canadian music. My at my parents' house, like we didn't have cable. I would spend a lot of time with my friends and also at my brother and his wife and my nephew. Like they live not far, like almost biking distance from my parents' house. So I would spend a lot of time with them and they had cable and they had much music. Oh, wow. Much music is like. Canadian MTV. (laughs) It is. It is Canadian MTV and it is such a defining like portion of that period of time for me from like 96 to like 99 almost 2000 jagged little pill came out in 95 yeah um but i wasn't aware of it until like 96 almost 97 the album had legs, though. They were putting out singles like a year and a half after still. <laughs> they were. Jagged Little Pill as an album came out when I was like third grade, and I absolutely shouldn't be listening to this. And I also had no knowledge of it, so it's fine. Yeah. But by like 97, you know, well, at 96, 97, like I'm in like fourth, fifth grade, and I'm like, you know, really starting to like come into my own and think my own thoughts and so on and so forth. And I remember I got for Christmas in fourth grade a disc changer. It was a three disc stereo set and they bought me the stereo, but like, I guess they, the joke was my friends and my, the rest of my family would get me like, you know, CDs in order to play on it. So for Christmas that year, I remember I got the stereo set and then my best friend gave me the preacher's wife soundtrack. Cause that movie had just come out and I was really addicted to Whitney Houston. Cause now we are into that. I believe there's like four eras of my life, but now we are into the era of, 
oh, Victoria can sing. Mm. Like, it's new, it's fresh, but we know it, right? So it's a fact. And, like, now I just want to be Whitney Houston. Yeah. Like, I just want to be Whitney Houston. I don't sound anything like her, and I know I don't, but I want to be her, Mm -hmm. right? So I got that album. I got, and I got money. And I remember going to Sam Goody and wanting to buy like albums. But my brother said to me, don't buy anything that we all have or that any of us already have. And by any of us, he meant him, his wife, my other brother or his wife. Create your own kind of music library, basically. So when he told me that, I was like, okay, well, I can borrow their R&B and their rap stuff when the time comes up. I think I'm going to get um, a Backstreet Boys album. For sure got the Backstreet Boys album. Of course. Because it had come out. Everybody was all over much music. You could see it once an hour, every hour, <laughs> maybe even twice an hour. So, like... I'm sitting here kind of like, okay, I'm going to buy this album. And I remembered hearing ironic and like screaming it out with my friends in like the car going to like the science museum or something. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I have enough money. I can get this. Well, I thought I got the single. Like I thought I was just getting ironic, the single. I am really dating myself. There was a point in time, friends, where you could just buy the single (laughs) without buying the whole album. Well, I thought I was buying the single. And I wasn't. I was buying the whole album. And I was already back home by the time I had realized it. So I just said, you know, screw it. I'd taken off the wrapper. I don't think I can take it back. You know, I'll just play it. I was like in fifth grade and puberty had hit me kind of hard already, but it hadn't hit everybody around me. And I was always, like, this, like, lazy overachiever where I would procrastinate until the very last minute to do things like an underachiever. But then when I would do it, if I wasn't giving, like, 150%, like, I would have a full-on panic attack about it. So, like, no setting between, like off and like panic mode go 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 (laughs) absolutely not no and like that was established pretty early i didn't really know how to identify like this is a problem and how do you break out of that so like now i'm having the existential crisis that puberty creates of like oh my god i can't do anything i suck at everything i'm ugly because i don't look like everyone else like you know there's so many and there's like sociological things there too right because like my body has developed i'm the only black girl in my class so i don't ever see anyone that really like looks like me on a regular basis so representation is like kind of a thing and i'm just like messed up. Like in my head, I'm just like, oh my God, like I don't understand anything. And I remember I didn't understand the random function on my CD player either, but I just would press it. And I pressed random and I didn't realize that Alanis's, that Jagged Little Pill was the CD that was going to play. And it randomly went to, um, not ironic, but what's another song on that? I'm, why am I blanking on this album? You ought to know. Right now. Uh, you ought to know. Feet. No, Head know? Over okay. Feet. It okay. went to Head Over Feet. <laughs> okay. Head Over Feet pops up, and I'm like doing my little like wavy dance, you know, feeling all nice and like cuddly inside, but like I'm feeling comfortable. And 
there's like the lyric in Head Over Feet that's like, I couldn't help it. It's all your fault. Yeah. So in my like angsty prepubescent, well, my angsty pubescent mind, I'm like, it's everyone else's fault. Oh, my God. Everything is everyone else's fault. Why does she know me so well? Right. (laughs) Then Perfect comes on Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this sounds boring. I don't even want to hear this. And then like, you know, in her Atlantis Morissette sounding voice, she says, sometimes is never quite enough. And I was just about to change the song. And like, I stopped. Yeah. And then the next lyric is, but if you're flawless, then you'll win my love. And I just remember sitting down and like, I'd never had one of those like cry when I hear a song experiences, but I was like 11 years old. And like, I heard like this song, like get to the end. And like, by the time it gets to the end, I'm like full face, like sobbing, like uncontrollably like sobbing because like, I just felt like the song like completely embodied everything I had been feeling up until that point, which was only like four or five months. But, you know, in my 11 year old body and mind and spirit, like that's a long time. Oh, hell yeah. And like, I'm like, oh, my God, I've been going through like never feeling like I'm enough, never feeling like I'm perfect. Like, I'm never going to be perfect. Oh, my God, I'm never going to be ever, ever good enough or anything or great. And why is this song speaking to me so deeply? And the next thing I know, I spend the next like four years on this like musical rabbit hole of going down like angsty music, like almost like looking for it. Forgive me for saying this, but I felt like I was just out here looking for white people music. Right. So I spent all this time watching VH1 because that's when VH1 only played adult contemporary music videos. I'm, I've dated myself this entire conversation. It's all right. <laughs> I'm older than you are, so it's cool. <laughs> I'm like thankful for Atlantis Morissette, honestly, because like, had I not, you know, had I not discovered, like, randomly purchased that album thinking I was just buying a single, like, I never would have discovered, honestly, I never would have discovered VH1. And if I never would have discovered VH1, then I never would have discovered, like, Eagle Eye Cherry or Matchbox 20 or, you know, any of, like, the catchy songs. Like, what was that? I can't ever think of the woman who did it, but, um, who performed it, but the song Bitch. Oh, I used to love that song. Yeah. Is it um, Meredith I'm Brooks? A, yes, I yeah, think so. Uh, maybe. <laughs> and then, like, you know, all those Lilith Fair artists oh, yeah. like Sarah McLaughlin mm-hmm. and, I mean, Tracy Chapman, which was also a very door opening thing for me, too, because music history dictates. And, like, you know, I've, I've, I have black parents, so obviously, like, you know, we're going to talk about black history. Um, And my dad was a big Sam Cooke fan, and he was, quiet as it's kept, a big Little Richard fan. So my dad maintained black people created rock and roll, right? And black people created the blues and all these other things, right? So I always associated that creation to, like, 40s, 50s, 60s, and that was it. So to see Tracy Chapman live in concert on an unplugged, you know, on those VH1, what were they called? The VH1 listening sessions? Oh, yeah. Not MTV had unplugged, but VH1 hmm. had like those listening sessions. Yeah. And Tracy Chapman had one. And it was like the most amazing thing to me because I'm like, wait, no, she's not old. And she's singing rock and the blues. Yeah. 
with an acoustic guitar. And then as I get older, then I find out that she's a lesbian and I'm like, whoa, the representation here, like, this is crazy. Like, this is amazing. Like things I just never would have learned had I not been watching VH1 so intently. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny to think of VH1 as sort of the vehicle through which diversity was increased, but that's fantastic. Especially considering like, this the era of VH1 that I'm talking about, yeah, yeah. right? Like I'm not talking about the current era of VH1 where all they have are reality shows and they're always talking about everybody else's culture and they're trying to, you know, really like span the the geography the geographical culture of the United States, but mm-hmm. like actual VH1 where literally all they all they catered to was like the middle aged white professional. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Because you know you had to be a professional to have cable. There was yeah. no cheap cable. So you had to be middle class. Yeah. VH1 was like soccer mom music. Like yeah, suburban was, white people. Like it was it was suburban white minivan music. It was definitely suburban white minivan music. This Alanis song. I don't even really know the singles from Dragon Little Pill. So that's not a single. I want to be clear. No, it's not. Exactly. So I, I may have heard this because, you know, it's a really popular album. So I probably have heard it once or twice before. But this is like the first time I ever sort of really paid attention to it. And I don't remember hearing it before. And like, it is such a song about the pain of trying to live up to very high expectations that yeah. both come from yourself and from others, you know? like Absolutely. Like, it's it's a really painful song. Really. It is. And it's probably a little heavier than like, you know, an 11-year-old should be listening to. But in the hi- in hindsight... What I was feeling was probably more than eleven year old should have been feeling. Yeah. It 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 opened up something in you. Like the the thing that was in you was there already. Like absolutely. I mean, just like the last song, like it allowed for me to put almost a face to a name, you know, a face to a, or in this case, a face to a feeling, a face to a sound, you know, a f- I could put a finger on it. I could really, I could say like, I never had a hard time communicating. But as far as talking about my feelings, that wasn't the easiest thing for me. You know, I could talk to you about any and everything other than me all day. And it's been like that pretty much my entire life. So, you know, hearing a song like that, it was perfect, for, especially at that time, because now I don't have to communicate how I feel. You just listen to that. Just point to the song. You were taking piano. You discovered you could sing. And this song is sort of about... Like we're saying, the sort of pain of having high expectations, possibly being like a high achiever. Were you like a star student in general or? Um, Again, I was a lazy overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) So I was really, really brilliant, really, really smart, Mm -hmm. you know, but I also had I didn't like to have to do work a lot. I didn't want to continually do it. I was I'm definitely. I definitely toggle the line. You know, the baby boomers love to talk about like the millennials and how we just want everything, you know, really, really quickly. I definitely toggle the line between Generation X and a millennial because I'm willing to take the time. I'm willing to, I refer to Generation X as the toaster oven generation. Yeah. And I refer to millennials as the microwave generation. I'm willing to take the time to let things bubble up, you know. I think of French bread pizzas, right? Yep, yep. I'm willing to put it in the toaster oven and let it get bubbly and crispy on the crust and nice on the outside and, you know, gooey where it's supposed to be. But also, 
I'm also really, really hungry and I don't have a lot of time to do things. So you can just stick that in the microwave for two minutes. And if it's a little tough, it's a little tough. I'll, I'll get over it. I'll find a way to steam it or something. That's a fantastic analogy. (laughs) (laughs) And like, it was, I think that like I had reached this, I was, that song really came when I was realizing like, I, yeah, I can sing, I can take my time and I can really cultivate this talent. I can, but also, like, this is music. And in the 90s, music was, you know, overnight sensation, one hit wonder. Like, it had to happen fast. And even at, like, such an early age, like, I just felt like my window was always closing. <laughs> that sort of pop genre. I don't know if yeah. it's still true now, but, like, back then, anything that was on the radio, was like, if you were putting out your first song, you'd be, you know... 25 would be old. You know, like. Yes. Yes. 25 was too old. Too almost. old. Almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you were 25, if you were like actually 25, they would find a way to try and market you as like 19, 20, 21 exactly. at the yeah. oldest. Yeah, you know, yeah. no one ever wanted you. They didn't want you to be too old. They didn't want you to be too unrelatable. Monica and Brandy were out at that time. So like R&B was like getting very young at the mm-hmm. time. They were mm-hmm. being marketed at like 14, 16, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm 11 and I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, my window is closing. <laughs> and then I found out there's like whole genres of music that are catered to older singers. And I was like, well, let me just tiptoe on in there now. <laughs> yeah. So we are about to leave pop and R&B and so forth to one side. Uh, where are we going to go? What's our next song? We are going to move to O Mio Babino Caro by Giacomo Puccini. Opera. Yes. Fantastic. So you have a classical background as a singer, correct? Yes. That yes. is my, that's kind of my niche. Yeah. And I know that this song is like a common, uh, common in the repertoire. Uh, so everybody like you, sings. Yeah. Yeah. Romeo, Bobby, no caro. So you're, you're included in everybody. Uh, oh yeah. All right. I competed with this song. Did you win? <laughs> Uh, no, but I won a prize. Oh. Oh, I didn't win good. the competition, but yeah. I won a prize. And I I compete with Puccini pieces just about any time that mm-hmm. I make a presentation. My Puccini pieces, I feel like, you know, I'm older now, so they definitely sit a little differently and they feel a little differently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as I've gotten older, they just keep getting better and better and better over time. Mm-hmm. So my dreams, my young dreams of being a Puccini specialist, now that I'm in my 30s, I actually see them coming real and yeah. I see them coming alive. And it almost makes me like laugh at that time when I was like, oh, my God, my window is closing. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> if I don't have an album up by 15, it's over. <laughs> believe no you know you might as well go back to the drawing board yeah it's never too late to be an astronaut <laughs> so is is it to do with like your voice maturing and getting richer as you get older or is it like the nuance of having lived more life and being able to sort of invest more emotional understanding into the performance or what what is developing your uh, ability to sing puccini better and better as you get older 
Life, definitely yeah. life. Um, but I also think the fact that I've been acquainted with Puccini for literally over half of my life at this mm-hmm. point, um, that's kind of the thing, right? So yeah. um, we're going to just step back just two steps. And I said that like Alanis Morissette was just a, a defining part of my life from like 96 to like 2000, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 2001. Okay. Picture it. Gotcha. My best Sophia. Picture it. Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> 2001. All right. I had been in this children's choir since early since mid 2000 and i auditioned for them um and it was a a classical kind of sound and Mm -hmm. i'd never been in a classical choir before i'd been in gospel choirs and i'd been in small ensembles um but they were mostly like you know contemporary and things like that so to be in a classical choir with a bunch of other kids that sound like me i was like this is nuts right like Mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't know that there were other kids out here that sounded like me i thought i was an anomaly so that was kind of my first foray of being like thinking that i'm exceptional than realizing that I was just one of many, but then also finding out like not long after that, that I was still considered exceptional because I'm one of many in my mind, but in our, in our many, I'm still floating at the top of the pond. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I remember like I was 14, I was like sort of boy crazy, um, but not really and puberty. So, you know, I'm feeling feelings. And this young man had showed some interest in me and I had a crush on him. So we decided that we would start going together. I don't know what that means looking back on it, but (laughs) he was my boyfriend and I was his girlfriend. And that was just, it was what it was. Right. And I had already made my debut with the symphony and he and I, he came to my symphony debut and my parents consented to us going to hang out together, kind of like a date, but didn't want to call it a date. My right. parents were very staunch about you can't date until you're 16. So he like <laughs> he takes me to go hang out with some of his friends and he's older than me. I'm 14. He's 16. So he can drive. And, you know, I just feel like I am on top of the world. So we're hanging out with some of his friends and we go to Best Buy because there's nothing else to do in mm-hmm. Richmond. Go, no, we, it was Circuit City. Best Buy wasn't wasn't around yet, but we went to Circuit City and all the TVs were on and there was a PlayStation ad that was playing and it was for Gran Turismo 4 and this song comes on and it's an opera singer and I hear it and I was like oh my god I want to sing that maybe a year prior to that when I was in like eighth grade I got in trouble at my little private school for running through the halls faking like I was Pavarotti We had watched in music class Fantasia, the Disney Fantasia, and you know the part when when Bugs, he's playing Brunhilde, which is the fat lady singing with Mm -hmm. the Viking horns and so on and so, and like he opens his mouth and these operatic sounds came out and somebody said, Victoria, can you do that? And I don't remember exactly who it was, but I remember like, I was like, oh, I can try and I tried it and it didn't sound bad. Yeah. 
And then I started going through the halls doing it. (laughs) And like, it's a tiny little private school. So like I have disturbed at this point the entire lower school. So that's kindergarten through first grade. I want to say the preschoolers were napping. I woke them up. (laughs) You know, I got in trouble. Like I got a detention for that. And in private school speak, you know, detentions, demerits. Oh my God, am I going to get expelled? Like, (laughs) All these things are running through your mind. My principal, and like I'm in pickup line waiting for my dad to pick me up. My principal walks up to my dad's car and says to him, Victoria was being loud in the halls. And my dad looks at me like, okay, so what's new? And my principal says to him, you should really think about putting her in voice lessons. She sounded really good. It oh. was disruptive, but she sounded really good. I think that was the first time that I like ever heard my principal say something nice about me. Wow. So that was how my parents let me audition for this children's choir. Well, anyway, back to message. Right. Right. (laughs) So like, then I was like, you know what, whatever. Like, so we fast forward, I'm back in Best Buy. Like we're back in those, in those shoes. Mm -hmm. And I hear this song and I was like, I want to sing that. I want to sing that. And then I get into my women's choir and my chorus teacher pulls out this piece of music and she's explaining it to us how it's from an opera, but it's been rearranged for a women's choir. It's SSAA and it's a really famous aria and everybody knows it. Um, and she wanted us to do this particular arrangement of it. It was pitched down a third though. I don't know what pitched down a third means. I just know that I'm really excited you know, to sing some music that's from an opera. Mind you, just this past weekend, I had just heard this song and I was like, I love that song. I want to sing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The song my chorus teacher picks out is the choral arrangement of O Mio Babino Caro, the song that I had just heard in the commercial over that past weekend. So things just lined up. So the universe literally just lined up and I'm like, okay, I should be singing this song. So I'm going to sing this song. So there's a solo in it. And my chorus teacher asked me to sing the solo because I sing it just fine. Okay, great. Well, like later on in my ninth grade year, it was after district choir, I started taking voice lessons, like private voice lessons. And I remember like my voice teacher asked me, what do you want to sing? And I said, I want to sing Omio Babino Caro. And she said, you cannot sing Omio Babino Caro. I said, I can hit an A flat. I can do it. Why can't I sing it? She said, your voice is not ready. Maybe when you're 16. And I'm like, maybe when I'm 16, why do I need to wait? If I can sing it now, we can start working on it now. I don't understand the mechanics of all of this. Microwave generation is now kicking in, Mm -hmm. you know, to hell with the toaster oven. I don't care about gooey or bubbly and crispy on the outside. I just want my pizza. Right. And she's like, no, you need to wait on it. But in the meantime, why don't you do some research on the opera itself? So Omio Babino Caro comes from Johnny Skiki, and it's the most dramatic, ridiculous aria that you'll ever hear once you put the backstory together. Like, it's this beautiful singing, right? But she's literally this 14-year-old girl named Lauretta. She's 14, and she's telling her dad she wants to get married, and if he won't let her get married to the man that she's just so in love with that she's not even really in love with. She just thinks he's really attractive. Mm -hmm. And if he won't let her do it, she's going to throw herself into the river. She's literally going to throw herself off the port. Like, because she needs this ring. She needs this love. Yeah. And I like, remember thinking like, this is ridiculous, (laughs) but 
If she's 14 in the opera, I'm 14 right now. Yep. Like, why can't I sing this? And no, I had just turned 15. So I'm definitely like, well, why can't I sing this? I'm older than the character. Yep. So I don't understand it. But, you know, I'm I'm not old enough to understand. Like, I didn't understand any of that. But I remember, like, my voice teacher kept saying, no, she just kept telling me no. But then she would periodically ask me, well, what did I learn about the opera? Right. So she would keep my interest peaked about it so that I would continue researching it, that I would listen to it, you know, so on and so forth. I actually turned out that I did not like Johnny Skeeky as an opera. Yeah. I wasn't into it at all. I just like this one aria. I loved it. But in learning this one aria, just like every other song, it sends me down a rabbit hole. And I said to her when I came into my next lesson, I was like, okay, I don't really like this opera. You know, I want to sing this, but you're telling me I can't, that my voice is not ready for it yet. What other arias, what other songs from, or at that point, what other songs from operas can I sing? Yeah. So that was how I got introduced to Mozart opera. And I saw The Marriage of Figaro, and I got assigned um, Non so più cosa son cosa faccio from, uh, that's Carabino's aria. But, you know, finding out about just Mozart, like, I knew about Mozart in the sacred music sense, because I had been in children's choir, so I knew about Mozart from, you know, I knew about the Sparrow Mass, and I knew about the Mass in C, and I knew about the Requiem. But to find out that, like, Mozart wrote, like, you know, whole operas, and they were actually good. Mozart is really kind of like the Shakespeare of opera. You can take that text, you can set it in just about any time period, and it can look great. Yeah. It can look great. It's very, it's it's timeless in that sense. I'm older now, you know, I've studied sociology, so there are parts of me that are a little differently colored, and there are some Mozart operas that I would never consider putting on (laughs) or like even directing because the sexism is like rampant, Mm -hmm. but there's just so much to be learned there. There's so much to be learned about like good singing. Also with her sending me on this rabbit hole of learning about other operas, it sent me down this rabbit hole of learning other singers and not just, you know, oh, the famous singers that you know, you immediately think of, like you immediately think of Marian Anderson, right? Mm-hmm. You immediately think of Leontine Price. You immediately think of Jesse Norman, but then learning about Harold Back Blackwell, you know, my voice teacher, bless her, bless her so much. She was really adamant about me learning about other black sopranos. It was almost just as important that she drive home to me that there are black sopranos. They are also singing this rap. You know, it's not like you can never do it. It's not like that you shouldn't see yourself doing this. You just can't do it right now. But I I think it's a really great point you make that your teacher really showed you that this door is closed to you now, but it can be opened to you. It's just not ready. It's like it's it's closed and it's locked, but it has a key and I'll give it to you when you're ready to have the key. Yeah. So when were you ready? When did you finally get to sing this? (sighs) My senior recital of high school. Mm hmm. I was, I was 18. Yeah. Yeah. I just had my 18th birthday, but in an act of rebellion (laughs) at our final choir concert, um, I got to do two solo pieces and I got to sing O Mio Babino Caro and I got to sing Your Daddy's Son from Ragtime. And 
my act of rebellion, though, was I got my tongue pierced. Ooh. And I had gotten my nose pierced because I was 18. I'm 18. I'm grown. I do what I want. Right. <laughs> so my parents were, um, they were very frustrated. <laughs> Our final choir concert was the week after prom. So I still had my prom hair. Yeah. It held up. I made it hold up. It was the Wednesday after prom. Um, so I made my prom hair hold up. And I looked cute. And I remember singing Your Daddy's Son. And I came, I was on book for that. Yeah. And then I came off book for O Mio Babino Caro. And it sounded really, really good. Like, really, really good for a high schooler. Yeah. And I usually don't qualify It Sounds Good. But for a high schooler, it sounded really, really good. But then I finally took my voice teacher's advice. It was something kind of clicked in my head after I sang that. Mm -hmm. And I put it down for two years. Yeah. My voice teacher used to always say about like Mozart, you know, you learn this song early, then you put it away for a year and then you come back to it and you see how you feel about it. That's when you start coaching it yeah. because you have to let it kind of not only settle in your voice, but settle in your mind. It's like making one. And yeah, it is. It's a lot like making wine. You do all this hard work, which is the learning. Then you have to wait and you have to just be patient. And it really tests, you know, it really tests my millennial microwave. <laughs> and I really, because no longer, it, it not only tests my millennial microwave, it also tests my Generation X toaster oven because this isn't even that. This is really like a crock pot. Yeah. Like, you really have to set it and forget it. Like, get your Rob Pape on. Like, you really have to set it and forget it. A lot of people talk about how opera is dying, right? How opera is a dying genre and it's a dying art form. And it's really difficult to want to keep going in your career when you see that the industry that you want to work in is is dying. And, you know, you just want it. You want a reason to kind of keep going. And Puccini said that he felt like God placed it on him to write operas. Puccini didn't write anything other than operas. And that was his mission. He said, that's what God put on him. Like, that's what he said about himself, that that was the music that God put on his spirit. And if Puccini got put on this earth to write operas, it's very possible that I got put on this earth to sing Puccini's operas. Indeed. Like, why not? <laughs> So what's the next song we have? So the next song is called Blessed and Highly Favored, and it is by the Clark Sisters. Looked out for me, he heard my cry and rescued me. gone through your sort of childhood like r&b we've gone through your like angsty like puberty music we've gone through your opera thing we're arriving now here at like sacred music and like things like that so what's the trajectory how do we get to this point okay so we got to this point via a pandora station okay 
I was doing the classical singer competition in 2011 and I was all nerves. I was not, you know, the way that all the cards were kind of stacking up, I wasn't supposed to make it out to LA. I almost missed my flight. You know, I booked at the last minute, so I didn't get to be in the hotel that the actual convention was in. Um, this is pre Uber. So, you know, the airport cabs aren't really trying to take me the half a mile straight down the strip. I remember the competition itself and the convention itself was at the Westin, and I was down the road at the Hyatt, the Grand Hyatt. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so separated from everything. I'm so upset. And I got into my hotel room and the blinds and like the curtains were open. I was poolside. And all of a sudden, all of those things just kind of started to melt away. And I... Every time I would go through something, I would just remember, like, it's okay. You can go back to your room and then you can just change into your bathing suit and, you know, you'll go poolside. Like, you'll just go sit in the hot tub. Well, I had tweeted, this is my early Twitter days. I had tweeted that I was out in LA at the convention and one of my earliest Twitter followers were no longer connected. So if she happens to randomly listen to this, Chimsy, thank you. You really enriched and changed my life on this trip. She hit me up and said, hey, do you want to come hang out with me for the day? I'll give you, you know, the not so touristy tour of L.A. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So she takes me all around L.A. and we do like some cool stuff. And she's she was Nigerian. She is Nigerian. And I believe she was going to a church function later that night. But like we had gone around Inglewood and like through Compton. I met her sister. We went to go eat at Roscoe's. Like we did all of the stereotypical LA things, right? We turn on the radio. I guess she's getting ready to, I guess, trying to get her mind right for this, this church function. And the Clark sisters came on and it was, you brought the sunshine. And I just was like, okay, this is, this is telling me something. I guess I should just listen to gospel for the rest of my time here. Well, when I got back to my hotel, they had sent the email that, you know, the preliminary rounds were, well, the second round was over and they let everybody know who had moved on to the next round. I had moved on to the semifinals. So I'm super excited. I was like, okay, all right, God, I see you. I'm going to just keep playing some gospel. So... (laughs) I knew I had like all these, I had arias, but you know, I've been rehearsing and coaching my arias since, you know, it had been almost three years with all of these pieces. So I felt comfortable. So I just kind of wanted to keep my chords loose. I wanted to keep my anxiety down. You know, I wanted to keep my energy up. I like, you know, up tempo gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, I went through the semifinal round. I had turned on some gospel I remember changing, turning it off, like turning it off and not listening to anything. I walked back to my hotel in silence. I don't know what possessed me to walk back to my hotel in silence. Well, I get back to my hotel and they sent out the email about who was going on to the finals and I had made it to the finals. So now like... I'm really like, okay, God, I see you like now. I really got to figure out what I'm going to listen to to keep my anxiety down. Mm -hmm. I get to 
the final round, well, the third round, not the finals. I get to the third round, and after you compete in the third round, they almost immediately tell you who's going on to the finals, like the the final presentation round. And I competed. I had on the same clothing. And I remember they said, don't leave the hotel. Don't go back to your rooms. Just stay on this floor. They were going to announce who was going to the finals so that we would be, you know, ready for later that night. Your girl made it to the finals. I made it to the finals. So now I'm freaking out because the finals concert starts in an hour. Yeah. I need to fix my makeup. I need to change. I need to do all these things. My hotel is a half a mile down the road. I still got to walk there. I was not the speediest walker in the world because I'm Southern. It's going to take me 30 minutes to get down there and 30 minutes to get back. And I don't want to be sweaty. What do I do? Uh Well, it just so happened that this girl who was in my study abroad the year prior came up to the competition because three of our other colleagues were in it, including myself. I'm the only one that made it to the final. So she stayed for the concert. Well, Jordy says, well, I rented a car here. Just I'll take you down this. I'll take you down the street. Perfect. Right. So she takes me down the street. Yep. So I get dressed. I get everything I need. I go back to the Westin. I'm glad that I went back when I did because they were going to start a little early and they had actually pulled numbers to see who was going to go, like what order we were going to go into. But I missed the number pull. So I had to go first. Oh, wow. So now my anxiety is literally through the roof because I was. Like I'm, I literally have to go first. Like now I have to set the standard and I'm like, okay, we can set the standard high. We can set the standard low, but whatever you do, you need to calm down. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have got to calm down. So I remember I had a gospel playlist that was set around this Jonathan Nelson song called expect the great. And I almost picked that song for this, but there was this moment that happened, right? Jonathan Nelson was playing and they said I was being too loud outside because the high school kids were, well, the undergrad, the high school, yeah, the high schoolers were doing their competition. They said I was being too loud in the hall and they could hear me singing inside. So I said, all right, I'm not going to stop singing this song. So I just changed the song. And the next song that came on was Blessed and Highly Favored. And I knew of the Clark sisters because I knew of You Are the Sunshine. It was a huge crossover gospel R&B hit in the early 90s, right? Like, it used to get played on every R&B station, every gospel station. You know, this was when gospel used to only be on AM radio. And you could hear You Brought the Sunshine on AM radio two or three times an hour. But I didn't know that the Clark sisters basically had this whole other catalog Like, I knew about it, but I wasn't super, super familiar. So when this song came on, like, it's very slow. Well, I shouldn't say slow. It's got a nice walk to it. And it's got a certain kind of harmony to it that if you've ever listened to girl groups or even, like, barbershop quartets, but particularly, like, the beauty shop quartets or, like, the groups of sisters, they have certain kinds of harmonies that you almost just can't recreate. Like, it's just innate to them. Chloe and Hallie are a perfect example of that in the present day. It's just certain things and certain harmonies that you wouldn't hear otherwise. And the Clark sisters, they're sisters. They've been making music together literally their entire lives. So you hear these harmonies and you hear how musically they kind of go against a lot of 
music theory rules. And they even go against like some jazz rules and some like, you know, things that we would call standard gospel rules. And it's just so, it's such a beautiful infusion. But as a singer, I have to lean into words. That's what differentiates singers from instrumentalists. We have words. And there's just this part of the song, and it doesn't matter if I can't remember any other lyrics, but it's just know that we're blessed and highly favored. And it's just like, you know, you you just feel this comforting, right? But it's a comforting that's a different kind of comforting because these harmonies are so tense, and they keep pulling at you, right? So musically, like, it's it, it's pulling at my mind. But my heart is, like, trying to listen to these words. And it's so indicative of how I felt at that very moment because I felt all this tension. I felt all this anxiety. I felt all this 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 bubbling, this this almost negativity surrounding me before I started to sing. But I had to remember in those very moments, like, I really wasn't supposed to be there, but God had brought me there. You know, my faith told me that God is what is who had brought me here. God is what brought me here, whatever God, you know, was at that time. And I felt like I just had something to hold on to. And I like at the time, you know, 2000, any my friends who my friends know and like people who are very close to me know it was a very traumatic time for me from like September 2010 until like March 2011. So being able to be at that competition when I really shouldn't have been there, you know, my finances said I shouldn't have been there. My mental state said I shouldn't have been there. My circumstances said I shouldn't have been there. But yet here I am. Here I am at this competition. Moreover, here I am at this competition in the final round. And at that point, I was a college dropout. (laughs) I had quit on my music degree. (laughs) I was just, you know, I was really, I was doing this competition as a way to like kind of prove something to myself. And then this song comes around and musically, it's really describing how I'm feeling but these words are just giving me such a peace. Mm-hmm. And it was such a defining moment for me spiritually that it almost forced my hand musically. Yeah. And it really did start me in the next rabbit hole of going down a sacred music path because I'd always sung gospel in church. Right. And I had sung Christian music at school. Right. And I sang sacred music for masterworks in children's choir. But I'd never had a piece of music that was about God or Jesus or a higher being that really spoke to me and spoke to my spirit. And that did. To me, this song, and as you're describing it, is kind of like the opposite of the Alanis Morissette song, where the Alanis yes. Morissette song is about feeling unworthy and feeling not good enough. And this song is like very much an affirmation, like, I am good enough and I am worthy. <laughs> like It's it's really, yes, it is. It's a true affirmation of I am good enough and I am worthy. And it doesn't matter what I do or don't have. Mm-hmm. I just am. And like, it's really... You know, I told my friend this, um, someone that I used to date, we used to have a lot of conversations about, um, 
it would be like some off the cuffs, like off the cuff statements of, you know, what do I do to deserve you? We had a really great relationship, but, and I made this statement of, well, Dr. Seuss used to always say like, you know, you deserve because you are right. And it's not about like, you know, when people say, oh, the world doesn't deserve. Dr. Seuss is a prime example of the world does deserve, you know, yeah, the world has some crappy things going on in it and everything might not go your way, but like, and everything might not be the best, but you know, the world still deserves good people. Yeah. And that's applicable to your life too. You know, like everything might not be going your way. You might be in a really, really low swing, right? Like it may, things may be really, really bad. And like, you know, I have my own personal issues with mental health. So I say this to myself a lot, things can get really, really bad and it's okay that they got bad. You know, progress is not linear. If you accept that, then you know that things are probably going to get bad, but just because something gets bad, it doesn't mean that you don't deserve good. Right. And that song in that moment, like, you know, it was one of those, everything around you says that this should be bad. You shouldn't be here. You know, your circumstances say you shouldn't be here, but yet here you are. And why are you here? Because you deserve to be here. That's lovely. Yeah. What's the last song you have for us? So the last song is the circle back, the full circle back to nineties R and B. And it is sweet love by Adita Baker. So does this song represent kind of your current state of being or what's the story here? I went down my sacred music rabbit hole and in going down my sacred music rabbit hole, I just started listening to gospel pretty much every day. Um, And I think that I turned on, I tried, you know, all the different streaming services, everybody raves about Spotify and I actually really enjoy Apple music. Like I know it's, it doesn't have the same features as Spotify, but it is a native app. So, and I am team iOS, Mac OS all day. Well, I was listening to a station with the wine-ins and this was actually, no, this was like four years ago, but I was listening to a station with the wine-ins and I was working a temp job and Anita Baker and the wine-ins have a gospel song together mm-hmm. and it's really good. I really like it, but it was a side of Anita Baker and it was a version of Anita Baker I hadn't heard. And my older brother, the one that's like the one that's 20 years older than me, he loves Anita Baker, like is addicted to Anita Baker. And this is a, a memory that I have, like for as long as I can remember, this man has been obsessed with Anita Baker. So I remember, you know, creating Pandora stations and I created a Pandora station that was Anita Baker and Diane Reeves and I'm a soprano. So, you know, I needed to, I felt like I needed to expand and listen to more low voices and alto voices, you know, other than Tony Braxton (laughs) and like Etta James. (laughs) So I'm listening to this album and I was like, you know, I knew Rapture, Anita. 
And then I started listening to the best of Anita and it was just, it kind of just became good music. It stopped being white noise background music and started being, you know, an active listening session for me. Right. And I started trying to pick up technique and things like that, that I could from her, because as I got older, my range has expanded both upward and downward. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to use my Anita sessions as learning sessions. Well, I had a really, really great relationship um, with the person I was just talking about, you know, when I said about the Dr. Seuss thing. And a big, great part of our relationship was communication. We always had great, honest and open and healthy communication with each other. And we would spend time together, but we just really respected boundaries and we tried to keep an adequate amount of space between us without being smothering, but also without being, you know, distant. And, you know, we would spend time together when we had it because I, I'm, I'm always busy, yep. always. So I remember one day, like, you know, I put it off for long enough. I had to clean and she was here. So I like, you know, kind of quietly got up and went out into the living room to try and clean up a little bit. And I turned on some music and it had gone to Anita. Like, so I said, you know what, Siri, play the best of Anita Baker album. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the kitchen. I'm cleaning the kitchen. I'm like gathering things and Sweet Love comes on. And I have this theory that all of Anita Baker's intros sound like one of three songs. Right. So you can kind of group all of her songs together in these three groups, except Sweet Love. All right. Sweet Love is very it it stands on its own. And when it comes on, like I almost immediately like, you know, want to dance like when I hear it. And I don't mean like, you know, do like crazy choreography. I mean, like your auntie's two step kind (laughs) of dance, Um, you know, and (laughs) Like, I'm dancing around the kitchen, singing this song, and, like, she sees me, like, you know, singing. She just, like, is quiet, just watching me. I don't even feel her behind me. And then I turn around, and I, like, just kind of see her. And she's, like, smiling and laughing at me, like, you know, this is a this is a real moment. Yeah. And Sweet Love kind of almost became, like, our song, Aww. like, in that moment. Because I, like, reached out, like, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for her to kind of just do something but she didn't do anything so i made her two-step with me (laughs) (laughs) and then like one of like one of the last times that we hung out together before we decided to end our relationship um while the romantic portion of our relationship um we were talking and we were in the car and the song came on the radio and I'm, you know, I'm adamant. I pay $9.99 for my Apple music. Mm-hmm. I play it every time I get a chance. Yep. <laughs> and I, for some reason, had the radio on and Sweet Love came on. And when it came on, I started doing the bankhead bounce, like, you know, the shoulder bounce. Yep. And she started doing it with me. And we had this whole like 90s dance party <laughs> to Sweet Love. <laughs> And I'm always just going to have this, like, positive, joyful, playful, like, moment to that song. Yeah. And it just feels, like, so good. And then, you know, when we went our separate ways, I plugged in my phone so that I could listen to Apple Music. But then the next song that came on was um, Same Old Love, (laughs) which is not the same as Sweet Love, but Same Old Love. And 
both of those songs just speak to a pragmatic, realistic kind of love. And I feel like, especially now that I'm older, you know, I had a different feeling about love songs when I was younger, right? Because we all want the fairy tale. But now that I'm older, I want a supportive love. I want a, I want, I want the love that is compromising. I want the love that also has boundaries. I want the love that is, that is conditional in the best of ways. You know, I'm contrasting in my head with the Puccini aria and I'm going to throw myself into the river versus this. I don't want, I don't want (laughs) throw myself into the river. Only 14 year olds could possibly want that. Right. (laughs) Only, only a 14 year old will want that kind of love. (laughs) And at that point in my life, that was the kind of love that I wanted. That was the kind of love that I needed. Yeah. You know, I needed. And the fact that I had heard that song for the first time, like I'd heard that Puccini aria for the first time in a Gran Turismo commercial and he's like driving off of a cliff. Like, <laughs> of course, <Yep. laughs> of course. But now, like, you know, the visual of love that I have is one that's, you know, someone who knows to buy that extra Ikea bag when we're at Ikea. Yeah. Someone who knows that, you know, flowers are great, but I really like candles. You know, someone who is going to recognize and remember, like, that I'm a fake vegan, vegetarian. Like, you know, I'm not going to turn away your chicken wings, but I'm not going to order them either. (laughs) (laughs) You know, someone who someone who wants to be someone who wants to be my friend. Yeah. And that was something that I really, really loved about our relationship is that, you know, so much of it was based on patterns and routines, but just because it was based on patterns and routines doesn't mean that they can't be fun. Yeah. You, can you know, two it's, step in the kitchen or we do can a dance two in the step car. in the kitchen. We can do a dumb dance in the car. We can go pick up ice cream at random hours. We can frolic through DC or whatever city we're in at the time. Like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. Exactly. And I love that sweet love makes me feel like I can do whatever I want. I can love however I want with whomever I want, however we so choose to love each other. Yeah. Pragmatic love songs really, I feel like they speak to the nuance that is commitment and the nuance that is love, the everyday love, you know, it really allows you to kind of see that like love is free. Love is whatever you want it to be. Your relationship is whatever you want your relationship to be and whatever is going to make you happy. Great. I hope you feel that. I hope that, I hope that everybody has that same, this is so selfish, but I hope that everybody gets to experience at least once that feeling of how I felt when I got to two step (laughs) with my lover in the kitchen, you know, to this, to this song that I've been hearing my whole life, but now it has a whole different kind of meaning to it Yeah, because now I have a memory that I can apply to it. I have a memory that I can apply to this sound. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today. If people are interested in uh, talking with you or, or hearing you or anything like that, what's the best place they could look? 
Oh, I have a recital coming up on February 23rd in Richmond, Virginia at Mount Tabor Baptist Church. That is the church that I grew up in. Um, and they're giving me an opportunity to sing and tell a few stories, much like some of the ones that I've had. We're going to take a little personal journey through Black Christianity. And by personal journey, I mean through my eyes um, and through my ears and my voice. And then I'll be doing that performance again um, in a little altered sense for my birthday up in D.C. Um, and I'm going to have some friends friends joining me. Um, it's a women's history kind of recital. So really excited about that. If you'll be in either Richmond or in DC and you're interested in hearing me, you know, send me a DM. I'd love to give you this information so you can come on out. Well, the first concert date has passed. The second one in D.C. is coming up later in March. So if you're in the D.C. area and you'd like to hear Victoria sing and take you on that personal journey through Black Christianity, you should get in touch with her. She's about to explain how you can do that through social media. Um, you can always find me on social media. Uh, my handles are all the same. It is underscore Vic I will. So underscore V-I-C-I-W-I-L-L. That's applicable on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Um, I'm not giving you guys my LinkedIn information. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, but if you send me a DM, I believe my DMs are open on both Instagram and Twitter. If you want to chat, um, you know, I'm down to talk about anything, guys. Like we can talk about religion. We can talk about music. We can talk about how people get on our nerves. We can talk about the daily grind. We can talk about this freelancer life. Whatever's clever. You know, I'm I'm here to chat. I'm a talker. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Many thanks to Victoria for sharing her life and music with us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little podcasts at megaphonic.fm. Like a part of our Scaritage where Adam and Sarah romp through the weird world of Canadian horror films. And if you get the pun in the podcast's name, then you're going to enjoy it. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 29. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King, while this show is also on Twitter at This Is Your Mix, and I almost never cross the streams. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. Hearing from listeners makes my day. If you want to support this podcast, the most helpful way is to leave a review on iTunes. That really helps with the mysterious magic of the algorithms. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. We'll see you next time.